Hello, Furidashi listeners. In this episode, we discuss Kingdom Hearts 2 from 2005. We contextualize it in terms of the transformation of AAA games taking place in the 2000s, how the game functions like a theme park, you know, because Disney, (laughs) how that theme park design presents the concept of a multiverse for a younger player demographic, and how the allegorical structure of the game creates a layered experience in terms of gameplay, narrative, and character development. If you like what we do, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash foodidashi, where you will receive bonus content like an extra full episode every month. There's no need to feel obligated, though, and whatever you choose, we're glad you're here to share our oddball game dev journey. And so with that, on with the show. Welcome back to an awesome episode of Furidashi Pod. I am your host, Lauren Ash, here with my also other host, Nicholas. Say hello. Simple and clean is the way that you're <laughs> making me feel tonight. Or this afternoon, because we're actually... Well, afternoon for me, more, still morning for you. But simple and clean. Simple yeah. and clean. And with that, that is exactly <laughs> what we are talking about, all of you Kingdom Hearts fans out there. Today, we are going to talk about a title that is incredibly exciting for me. And by me, I mean probably like 12-year-old Lauren playing this for like the time, Kingdom Hearts 2. Not 1, not 3, not 365 over like two fractional It's, it's 358 over memories. two days. <laughs> no. Um, none of that. Uh, only Kingdom Hearts 2. And the reason why we're talking about this is because, one, I really believe that Kingdom Hearts 2 has stood the test of time oh, wow. uh, and is the best Kingdom Hearts game Second is that it's a game Nicholas had never played. Um, yep. And I basically was like, hey, just skip the first game and like just play the second. And I'm not sure because he'd kind of already played a little bit of it. That I, well, that's the thing is that I, I had played the original Kingdom Hearts way back in the PS2 days because my wife bought it. My wife has played it uh, far more extensively than I have, but I played it as well. But I didn't remember any of this junk at all. So and I was kind of fresh, yeah. Yeah, and with that, uh, like Nicholas has said, it's called a junk. I still incredibly love the Kingdom Hearts franchise. I really like Kingdom Hearts. Um, And I will say I'm one of those originally called Kingdom Hearts purists, where I only believed that a Kingdom Hearts on the console was worthy of being played because I'm dumb slash I had no money to buy the other uh, handheld portable devices. So really, it all came from that bitter resentment and jealousy of not being able to play any other games. Um, but I am going to say that because I still think to this day, like there's a lot of people that recognize kind of Kingdom Hearts like one, two and three. Right. Or like the Sora Chronicles as yeah. this kind of legacy of like the Kingdom Hearts like installment franchise like canon. And I'm going to talk about it in a canonical way because Kingdom Hearts is something, as you can see, right, that has grown out of proportion. It of itself is a meme where if you thought Final Fantasy 14 over 7000 versus 3-2 is bad, they stole that <laughs> from Kingdom Hearts, right? Yeah. And so 
with that, uh, spoiler alert, right? Lauren loves Kingdom Hearts, Nicholas doesn't, and then we talk about it for a really long time. It, it's we'll not also that talk- I don't. <laughs> <laughs> We're also going to talk about it even longer into our Patreon episode where you get exclusive bonus episodes, transcripts, and additional content, all yep. not quite free of charge, but all included within our first tier. And then our second tier gives you even more of that exclusive content. So if you aren't subscribed to Patreon, please subscribe uh, and kind of, you know, fund this awesome little community that we're trying to start up over there. Um, With that, uh, oh, I also uh, forgot to mention that we do have a sub stack uh, with in-depth design analysis. And Nicholas, did you also want to talk about not just the Substack, but kind of give the readers, readers, listeners, an understanding of what they can expect on Substack where they become readers yeah. in addition to uh, some things that we're doing with YouTube? So the content that we're posting there is primarily like more specifically design focused. I mean, we kind of always talk from like a game design perspective, generally speaking, but the series that we're doing now on Substack is specifically about narrative mapping and level design or sort of game design, generally speaking. And we're talking about a framework for understanding how to think of like the structure of game levels and game worlds in a narrative fashion using the sort of basic principles of like how you establish things, how you complicate them, how you resolve them. And that is going to be more like I said, more specifically focused on sort of like the here is how you do this kind of thing, or like here's analysis for the purpose of like making your own game. Uh, But it has general applicability as well, even if it is sort of like a little bit more theoretically focused. Uh, We post those once a month. They are perfect. They are completely free. All you got to do is sign up on, I think it's gamedesigndiscourse.substack.com for all sorts of fun stuff. Oh, and I also want to mention that we, I've been going through our back catalog and I have been post, YouTube now has sort of a podcast feature. I have been posting old episodes to YouTube. So if you want to, um, I don't know, just like have it, have old episodes playing in the background while you're working on stuff. Now it is much easier. You just, you know, playlists, they're there. They're fantastic. We love them. We love playlists, don't we? Yeah. All right. Well, now we're doing the playlist. We love our own playlist. I thought it was really funny. Usually, uh, Nicholas is pretty humble, um, but this is the first time he's gone through the whole. whole it's really pitch. fucking good. Everything we do is really amazing, and you <laughs> should pay far more than you have to because it's just so juicy. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's, all right. That, that's all right. the only time you're ever don't be, me don't like be, uh, <laughs> don't be Nomura here. All right. <laughs> Trying to sell this to Disney and make all the yeah, money yeah, in the yeah. world because Kingdom okay. Hearts has probably made a lot of money. So yes. back to the topic at hand. Um, thank you guys again for listening. Uh, we're going to now talk about the background of Kingdom Hearts as a yeah. kind of concept and franchise. And this yep. is really going to go into like the history, right? How did Kingdom Hearts come to be? Yeah. So, okay. I mean, <laughs> at its core, what Kingdom Hearts is, is essentially like a way to play a Final Fantasy game while watching a Disney movie if I'm being snarky about it. But the reason why that came to be is because Square, when it was still Square, not Squeenix, um, shared an office, not office space, but they were in the same building as Disney Japan. And so there is this possibly apocryphal story about like executives from Square running into executives from Disney and being like, hey, let's do a team up. Um, But that's not quite how it's actually structured because the game is fully developed by now Squeenix, by Square Enix. Apologies if I use the weird mashup term for the 
studio. No, it's just um, squeeze. <laughs> I will say, I will say, is the elevator story something that's true? Because it wasn't until we had talked about this that I've actually ever heard of that before. Um, I've seen it reported, but then at the same time, like there, there's never a source given for this. Like there's never a specific person who was apparently involved in this elevator meeting. Maybe I just have yet to find it. But yeah, no, I, it had been reported. Doesn't in the lack places. of source make something more credible, though? I mean, come on, this is all what you, hearsay. What? <laughs> Hello, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> um, but anyway, but I think there is an important point to make that sort of like the game is fully developed by Square Enix, and they primarily license characters and IP from Disney. Disney actually has game production studios that it sort of like oversees owns etc but none of them are actually involved in the production of these games and in fact this arrangement has caused i wouldn't say problems in the past but there have been times when nomura tetsuya the sort of creative force behind kingdom hearts has tried to license specific characters for the kingdom hearts games and has been denied by disney um oftentimes for very vague reasons like not entirely clear why they would do this but like disney essentially just has a veto on what content uh square enix is allowed to use they're not really sort of necessarily super involved in the process like a lot of the sort of the classic like disney voice actors especially the current ones for like you know really iconic characters like you know mickey donald and goofy etc like they they also then do the voice acting in the game but then this is all done, you know, through like contractual arrangements. It's not sort of like a direct, direct, direct collaborative relationship. And then, so when uh, Nomura was tasked, well, he really kind of like <laughs> insinuated himself. He he really wanted to work on this project. Um, when he was thinking about how to like structure sort of the game overall. He primarily thought of it in terms of a Disney theme park. You know, Disney theme parks are these things that we're, most people are familiar with. Uh, Japan has its own Disney theme park. There are several Disney theme parks in the U.S. There are Disney parks in Europe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so the structure of the way in which sort of a theme park both sort of contains like multiple domains and then within it's sort of you know a theme park really has a hub and spoke design i mean we have talked in the past about like hub and spoke design or sorry, <clears throat> in terms of like you know quest hubs and so forth but if you're like you know you're in tomorrowland in you know the magic kingdom there are sort of tomorrowland themed rides and attractions within proximity but like the second you step out of tomorrowland you're in like an entirely different domain with different attractions and so, right, and I, yeah, I think we use, but we actually use the theme park design as a concept in gaming. I say gaming, but I mean like in game development all of the time. Like yeah. we say hub and spokes now because we've kind of tried to abstract from it. So we don't use the word theme park, right? Yeah. But I think Disneyland and in general, like if you look at urban planning design as well, like a hub and spokes design is pretty much everywhere. That's why you have the town square. Not in the US. We have really terribly well, designed cities. <laughs> no, every well, everywhere does have like originally a town square. I think the issue is that a lot of the towns ended up just like not getting designed. And I think yeah. that's, you're not saying that we have poorly designed. You're saying we have a lack of Und design. Yeah, undesigned. Yeah, right? exactly. But there are a lot of like, if you look at other cities which have been planned, right? Yeah. You do have a lot of like, 
interesting city designs either because of the culture where like nothing can be in the center because that's where the emperor lives yeah. or you have cities where they're completely right centered around like an actual downtown square um, yeah. or like a particularly inhabited area. And so I would say that like it's very interesting because design right in games once again, the simulation kind of looks at the real world. So I do yeah. say that when Novera is saying he wants it structured like a theme park, I think what's really valuable and interesting here is to kind of understand that in game development, we look at these real world designs and we're also like, how do we get this and apply this to our game? Yeah. Right. And where that goes. So go more the further into like Numera's actual like theme when because he was using theme park, not just hub and spokes, right? He was using theme park yeah. as theme park. Exactly. So, and you can even see the way this plays out in the game. So in the original Kingdom Hearts, there is this like thematic thread that runs through the entire story that like uh, Sora and whoever happens to be with him at any given time, you know, you go to a particular world and they are literally worlds. They're like you, 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 you drive a gummy ship to a world and it's a separate world and contained within that world is a particular like Disney property. So, you know, you have a Hercules world and you have a, a Beauty and the Beast world, you know, they're, they're all self-contained. And the thing is in the original Kingdom Hearts, the whole point was that you're going on these adventures partially to find your friends, but also partially to keep these worlds entirely distinct from one another. And that's where I think sort of like the theme park thing is really important because when you think about classic, like hub and spoke design for like, you know, series of quests, the idea is that the, the the hubs themselves are actually supposed to be interconnected like you know if you think like in wow like when you get through all the elwyn forest quests they send you onto westfall and from westfall they send you onto uh what's the dark one that's right next to westfall i can't remember what it's called whatever it's called who cares <laughs> yeah i was not prepared to have to answer World yeah no, Minecraft, i don't remember i haven't played wow in forever but I was the about point... to say the dark hold and that is definitely no no i don't think that's it anyway no, no, no it's definitely not that. i think it's dark dark fall no Dark Dusk, Duskfall, Duskfall. Duskfall. Yeah, yeah. see? Yeah, dusk, I don't know. Whatever. Hey, future Nicholas here. I'm going to save you from our past selves brilliance and note that it's Duskwood. The zone in WoW is Duskwood. All right. Back to the episode. But the point is, is that like there is a there's a clear sequential relationship between these things and like there is a narrative thread that connects them. But a theme park is very different in that like even though you could have like these domains that butt right up against each other, they are fully distinct. And also at the same time, because of that near full distinction there is a kind of pseudo sandboxy feel to it not in the, like the sense of like i say a breath of the wild but even in kingdom hearts like in many cases you can like choose to like you have multiple worlds available to you to go and they're not sequentially related to each other they may have certain like limitations in terms of how hard they are or like what expectation for your level you're supposed to have but nothing sort of compels you to sort of do them in a particular sequence whereas in many ways like you can't walk from elwyn forest and elwyn forest into whatever the dark one is because you will just get <laughs> splatted <laughs> so the the difference between the hub and spoke design is that with a theme park structure you're really sort of thinking about it in a more like loosey-goosey as i said sort of like pseudo sandboxy kind of way and that in many ways sort of represents the kind of open worldiness 
for lack of a better term, that you see in a lot of like RPGs that were being developed, particularly like, you know, in the early 2000s, even through the late 2010s and so forth. This idea that now that we have, now that we're sticking, you know, DVDs into our consoles instead of CDs, we can create these massive, like expansive worlds that really sort of Final Fantasy as a series was, they were the ones to pioneer that really. But in the early 2000s, you also have games like, you know, Dot Hack, which were trying to take this idea of sort of like this expansive pseudo open world concept and kind of run with it in different ways. I think Mic what's drop. interesting, <laughs> Mic drop. No, I think what's really interesting for me is that when I look at the world of Kingdom Hearts, it definitely feels like this world wouldn't exist if it wasn't made up of other worlds. Like yeah. something that's really interesting about Kingdom Hearts for me is that we keep talking a lot about this world design and this theme park design, but that really goes into the structure of the characters and where the characters come from. Like I'm yeah. not quite sure, and I don't think it's ever actually explicitly stated, and this is maybe my, I haven't played every single Kingdom Hearts title, now I'm not an authority. Um, but I think that it's never really explicitly stated where Kyra, uh, Kyra, where Sora, Kyrie, and Riku are from, like especially not in Kingdom Hearts One, and definitely not in Kingdom Hearts Two. Like you see Kyrie apparently going to like school in what I'm honestly presuming is like a Japan like structure, like structure being like world, and that like yeah. you know they it, it's just supposed to represent right where somewhere normal. Yeah, they live in some place called like the islands. That's all it's ever. No, it's it's to the, the islands, islands, right? Hence yeah. Japan. Yeah. I guess. (laughs) um, Excuse me, right? And then there's this island where everybody goes, you know, to have fun, right? Which is down in the south. And then there's the island that they live, which is like the city slash whatever. But I think what's also kind of parallel to this is then, right, the secret ending of Kingdom Hearts 3, which we're not getting into because this is about Kingdom Hearts 2. So when you look at Kingdom Hearts 2 and Kingdom Hearts 1, right, the real world, right, or the world that Sora is from, that he's been taken from, right, doesn't exist because in a theme park, right, from Disney himself, when you enter into Disneyland, the real world slips away and the only thing in front of you, right, is Disney. Well, he doesn't say Disney because that's his name, but now we can just be like Well, you can use Disney as kind of like the or concept. It is the or concept. You go to Disneyland and now there is Batu, right? The planet from Star Wars that you just go to, right? There's Tomorrowland, like there's the jungles, right? There's the Haunted Mansion and now you're like, you know, there's this weird pseudo hyper american area yeah I mean, yeah you know yeah. like there's, there's <laughs> these things right and all I very american that, in one way or another but yeah right but like when you look at building a world of a game right which is like building kingdom hearts the world where sora came from wasn't important right particularly in kingdom hearts one and then in kingdom hearts two like he was about he wanted to get back there yeah right but it was like this MacGuffin, right of well i'm not where i was so now i have to right fight and then get my friends back, get my life back. But then yeah. as you like, as you enter Kingdom Hearts 2, and also I guess Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories is actually incredibly important here, which I actually did play, so I don't know what I was going <laughs> on about. Um, but I guess because I had a GBA, so yeah. or a Game Boy Advanced for anyone who does not know that acronym. All my youth out there. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> look now. We're in, we're in the realm of possibility. Uh, no. So I think that that's been really, that's been really interesting. Um, but I'm curious, like when we look at all of these like world building, like I know particularly with Kingdom Hearts, we wanted to kind of compare Kingdom Hearts 2 to, right, all of the other existing 
right? World building aspects and like RPGs out there as well, right? So yeah. I think for me, I actually just wanted to highlight that the absence of this world, right? Yeah. Is what kind of enabled, right? This sort of, you know, dare I say it, multiverse aspect, right? Of Kingdom Hearts to have all these different worlds be connected, but also as distinct as possible because they're not supposed to connect. And then that, in a yeah. way, forced my brain as a child to make them still have these connective threads. And then Kingdom Hearts 1 does a, a little bit of a better job with creating that thread. But Kingdom yeah. Hearts 2 then kind of circumventing that and then creating this whole parallel universe that's actually been there the whole time. Right. So yeah. before we get into that, let's keep going kind of deeper into this history just so we can understand the cultural yeah. context, right, that the developers were working with at the time. Well, I mean, there is a sort of like, <clears throat> I don't know if it could be considered like an industry shift per se, but there was definitely kind of a transformation that was taking place in terms of like games, especially like established franchises that previously were kind of like their, their world building was, I don't want to say shallow, but it was kind of just like in the background, it was sort of a frame for gameplay and gameplay was really sort of much more central than narrative. They, they weren't really on an equal footing. And so the immediate example I thought of when I was trying to put this together was sort of like the transition from Warcraft 2 to Warcraft 3. Because they're both real-time strategy games. They both have you know very similar mechanics. You know, Warcraft 3 doesn't reinvent much. I mean, it adds the sort of the heroes to the game. But aside from that, there's not a whole lot more going on in Warcraft 3 than Warcraft 2. But what is really different is the narrative structure of Warcraft 3. And the way in which it establishes really most of sort of what are now considered to be sort of like the major classic characters in the Warcraft universe. I mean, that's where you get Thrall from. That's where you get Arthas from. That's where you get Jaina from. Like all of the, it's where Uther is introduced. Like all of these characters are sort of brought into play, not just as like, hey, this is the guy, this is the, the named shaman guy, but rather this is sort of a person who will have a consistent story that will exist throughout, you know, all future iterations. And that is really sort of a, a, a big shift. And also you see a similar thing happening with like the Metroid series. Whereas, you know, if you look at, compare Super Metroid to Metroid Prime, not only is it like a huge leap forward in terms of gameplay, I mean, mostly because Metroid Prime is a first person shooter, whereas Super Metroid was not, but like, that Metroid Prime is really where sort of like the entire universe of understanding of like what Samus's background is and sort of the, 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 I guess you could say the situation of humans in outer space really starts to cohere and become a narrative through line that will then carry forward. And, and so, this is sorry. in the year 2002, just yeah. out of curiosity. Did Kingdom Hearts 2 come out in 2002? Yes. Are we, no, no, sorry. Kingdom Hearts 1 came out in 2002. Okay, Kingdom Hearts 1 came out in 2002. I was like, hold on now. Just so that uh, one for myself, I was, it wasn't that I Kingdom was Hearts, lost. Kingdom Hearts 2 was 2005. Yeah, Kingdom Hearts um, 2 was 2005. Okay, I'm like. Yeah, but the point is in the, back, in the background section, I'm trying to sort of well, I was, I was definitely older than 12 in 2005. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to say like, I this is where. I aged myself so much. That, I should have just kept that. I should have just kept <laughs> Regardless, all I wanted to point out is, okay. point out is there's, there is a thing that is happening that is sort of like radically transforming what will then become long-established series. 
No, there is. Nicholas, I want you to keep going in on this. I just wanted to make sure that I got my ears right because my gamer brain was going, hold on now, Nicholas. I feel yeah. like 2002 is a little bit too early for Kingdom Hearts 2. It is, and I was being all right. snooty. And it's, <laughs> it is because I was right. So all the gamers out there who were listening with me going, wait a second. Uh, there we well, go. You also see this in games that that sort of like followed thereafter. So like Kotor, for instance, which came out in two thousand three. So like in between Kingdom Hearts one and Kingdom Hearts two, like it's taking the same idea of sort of like you know integration of an expansive universe. Kotor is twenty a... years old. Yes, that's why they're remaking it. I have been playing games for over twenty years. I mean, I knew that, but it is. We're talking about Kotor one, by the way, the original. No, one. yeah, the original yeah. Kotor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, that is fucking crazy. So this like <laughs> is like a seminal year-ish yeah. of games just coming like this, out. Well, this, I would say like early 2000s, like in total. So like the period between say like 2002 and 2006 would be a year after Kingdom Hearts 2. Like in that crucible, whatever you want to call it, like there is this- The pre-Facebook era. Yeah, the, and the thing is because it, it's establishing a lot of really long-term series. Like in that same really just- three or four year span you get assassin's creed you get god of war you get these really incredibly long-running series where like gameplay and narrative are like distinctly and explicitly married to each other and yeah. that is happening in this moment of time and i really so even though i'm not a huge fan of kingdom hearts and king or i mean i think kingdom hearts 2 is actually better than kingdom hearts 1 but the thing is, it is directly involved in this transformation. And it's hard to think about a time when like what we now regard as really long and well-established series as being something that people invented, like had to come up with. No, and, they did. Yeah. People had to think about using their brains. They invented <laughs> this. I know it sounds like dumb, but like, yeah, they invented this. I don't know. They invented it. And I know that sounds probably crazy, but it's like, I cannot tell you the amount of times people go, you know, there's the ideas guy, right? Yeah. Or the ideas, the ideas person. And I agree that ideas people's, like if you just have the idea, right? It's yeah. one thing to say, you know, if Nomira had just said, I wanted a game structured like a theme park and I just want to like have in Disney. And maybe that's what he did a little bit in Kingdom Hearts 1, right? But he still had to have some sort of, there's cloaked figures, there's this, underlying lore of this world right and i think that they had to do these for all of these games like assassin's creed didn't just like not have i don't want to say not have documentation because now i'm just like obviously pointing at people who have do not do documents properly but <laughs> all i'm saying is like it, I, it's so hard for me to go look if you have an idea you have a story you have writing right you have a concept like you actually write that shit down and you put it into a world bible Right. Like you put yeah. it into something yeah. and like stories for countless like I said countless immorial like I don't know what I'm talking about. Movies haven't existed that long, Lauren. Um, but like in TV shows, right, books, you would create a book for right your TV show for your thing. And then, yes, because we in the West, right, use the word Bible to mean like anything that is a source of truth. Yeah. Right. It's the Bible. It's the world Bible. Right. It's a yeah. story Bible. So I think that yeah. like this concept just to like list off even more of the titles, right? It's like we talked about Metroid Prime, but can you also go into kind of versus the Super Metroid, 
right? Like what was the difference of lore? So Super Metroid was in many ways just kind of a graphical update of the original Metroid game for the NES because it was a side scroll. I mean, you know, it literally like Metroid is one of the two components in what is now referred to as the Metroidvania, which is a particular kind of side scrolling like action game. Which is weird because the Metroid games themselves, aside from like Metroid Dread, is the most recent one that has like gone back to this style. But like Metroid itself kind of veered very far away from this style. And so did Castlevania for a while there. But it's this idea of, yeah, like the, the sort of the action oriented, like side scrolling platformer. And that is oftentimes by game designers referred to as a Metroidvania style game. So for example, right. Hollow Knight is considered to be a Metroidvania. Yes. Um <laughs> so like to have like in many ways like a game that is like that iconic in terms of what it's supposed to be to suddenly be like an entirely different genre of game so like it, it did two things like it both radically transformed gameplay in going from being a side scroller to a first person shooter mm -hmm. but also because of that shift the thing is like I and and I talk a little bit about this in the book that we are working on, which is that when you play a first person game, there is a way in which it very sort of very uncomfortably tries to map the perspective that is presented to you onto the, on the screen with your own perspective as a human being in terms of like what you see in reality. Whereas when you're talking about a 2D side scroller, that mapping is not happening. And so there is a difference in terms of like expectations for how you're like inhabiting an avatar in that scenario, as opposed to say like the way in which your avatar is kind of an abstraction on the screen in a side scroller, like that is a, a classic shift. And so the thing is like, then to bring this back to kingdom hearts, when you're looking at a character, like say Roxas at the very beginning of kingdom hearts two, who is strangely like for me kind of came out of nowhere because like I hadn't played the intervening games. And so I'm like, wait a no, minute. Even I the thought... intervening games has <laughs> nothing to do with Roxas. Roxas came out of nowhere for everyone. Yeah. And so, and so, yeah, so I was very confused, but at the same time, like Roxas is a very compelling character. And it's interesting because in terms of like inhabiting his worldview it reflects back on like how you're supposed to understand Sora, especially since spoilers, they become sort of like reintegrated after, you know, the prologue of the game. And that causes complications for Sora, you know, throughout the, the rest of the game. And so I think this idea that you're supposed to forge this kind of like intimate personal relationship with a character is stemming out of this idea that you're supposed to like marry gameplay and narrative rather than just like have narrative you know as this is this term that is often used like the narrative wrapper it's, it's sort of like the the way in which you design the container for what is fundamental which is gameplay whereas here we're talking about a moment in time and kingdom hearts 2 especially i think embodies this when like gameplay and narrative can't be extrapolated from one another and so the idea that sort of you experience the game as a kind of theme park is in many ways like the experience of and i'm going to get a little bit sentimental here like being a kid going to a theme park for the very first time and seeing these things be available to you and it's like oh i get to see donald and Go they're in weird sort of like plastic costumes but i saw donald i saw goofy i saw <laughs> i saw mickey yeah. mouse yeah no and like I that, think what's that is a very different experience 
it is a very different experience. And I'm like, I'm glad you're bringing it back to Kingdom Hearts because I realize now that it's probably like, okay, guys, you've talked way too long about like the history and about all of these different games. But what I hope you understand what we're getting at now is that Kingdom Hearts has this like rich lore. So let's like talk about some of that just a little bit here because it isn't just about going to the theme park, right, of Kingdom Hearts. Is that it really uses Kingdom Hearts or that theme park as like a metaphor for yeah. – just just the story in general, right? Like Sora yeah. himself being ripped from his world. And like, let's start though in Kingdom Hearts 2 with that moment of Roxas. Yeah. Because this is the meme of literally every player playing Kingdom Hearts is, who the fuck are you? Fuck Roxas. I hate Roxas. And then 10 hours later, you're like, no, Roxas, my boy, my man. My <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really love Roxas. <laughs> you were trying Roxas so hard. I, I, yeah. I'm like, all you wanted to do was like, eat ice cream with your friends. Like, why why is this and now so here's the thing is like the whole whole roxas like story right in that yeah. moment in the first 10 hours or i probably not 10 hours like two hours three five it takes hours about, it, it took me, i say I 10 hours two, to mean the first like long chunk of a tutorial it's very long it's, the pro the prologue's pretty long so long without sora and so that's yeah. why i say 10 hours is it feels long but I think it's really only like maybe three hours, maybe an hour and a half if you like know what you're doing, like you're replaying it. I right? think it took me three, if I remember correctly. So I think that like, yeah, so anywhere from one and a half to three hours, you play Roxas, you're not even playing Sora. And really you're like, what are the parallels, right, that we see in that opening shot? We see you starting in your room, a very similar room to what Sora's room looked like. Yeah. Right? We see you get up, you have three friends, right, which is different because you have more yeah. than two friends. Yeah. Um, but you've got three friends that you guys always hang out together and you are the one, right, that needs to come up with literally all of the money so you guys can buy ice cream or like a ticket on a train. Well, or yeah, a ticket to go to the weird like yeah, little the theme park land that is away from yeah so, yeah it is yeah. it is to go to the theme park land that is yeah. really interesting you've got to go to your theme park land that's away yeah. from where you live right and so this is what i'm talking about is using this whole theme park as a metaphor is that the opening of kingdom hearts 2 for me as i played it i didn't really notice any of these things it wasn't until i told nicholas to play it again and then i had to start critically thinking about one of my favorite games which try to be honest i try to hate i hate to do um but i've i i just do it anyway because that's what you do as a game developer and we have this. It's very, it's very much Sora's room. In fact, it actually is Sora's room. Yeah, as you later you, discover, yeah. As as you later discover, right? Yeah. And not only is it Sora's room, but like certain things are slightly changed, but not much. It's actually yeah. like the same assets, right? And I think that maybe like a very knowledgeable player would have probably figured that out. But honestly, like you don't see it that long, just like you didn't see Sora's room that long. Like you maybe saw it for like a second in a cutscene. Because I remember watching these analyses. And you actually see Roxas's room just a little longer. And I think that's powerful because now in the cinematography, they're going, hey, look, he has a home. He has a place to stay. This is where Sora yeah. wants to be. This is where Roxas wants to be. And I think they use that really elegantly with now he has friends and he needs to buy a ticket right, to go have fun with his friends. He needs to eat sea salt ice cream on, like they always have on this tower in Twilight Yeah, yeah, the, yeah the weird blue right? ice cream, yeah. The weird blue ice cream, because I'm like, sea salt isn't blue, but that's no, fine. I did I grow know. up going sea salt ice cream would be great and being very upset when it wasn't dyed blue. Like, <laughs> I just, I, I, yes, I just, what is, what am I doing? 
I'm calling all of these out because then if you remember, like, if you are a Kingdom Hearts fan, you'll know that they basically took this first scene and literally just killed the metaphor, made it incredibly literal, and, like, just established the crap out of it by giving it backstory to kind of explain why all of this probably was important to Roxas and Kingdom Hearts 2. And also to hopefully make you guys remember that, yeah, actually, all they did in all those other games was reuse assets from Kingdom Hearts 1, and we went to the Dark Beach (laughs) and reused. Yeah, yeah. the assets in kingdom hearts 2 so no none of those games were original and let's move on um okay so back i mean they were there is some good story there i, I get it it's just i well i don't uh, think originality is the point i mean why i mean if originality was the point then why it's, it's, would you essentially like literally reuse like disney ip and the thing is, they don't well, radically so much... change the stories. They, they actually no, they just don't actually the change stories. the story. So I shouldn't say originality. I should, what I should say is like there was no true for me. There wasn't a lot of depth that came from watching the cutscenes included yeah. with Kingdom Hearts three of all of those other games, <laughs> so that you could play Kingdom Hearts three with all of the knowledge. And I think maybe that's what I'm kind of. This is where I think I really wanted to spend the majority of our time here. Yeah, was talking about not just this like theme park metaphor, right? This game metaphor but i'm highlighting the roxas portion because getting you to connect with roxas as a child for me made me recognize that roxas and i guess spoilers nearly 20 years later um is that roxas is just sora's i guess nobody and yeah well it's a it's a it's a a complicated relationship between roxas and sora because it's not complicated if sora is roxas and then that's a different that gets no, more I, so, complicated okay, so here, here's here to, to me is the issue is because the thing is that like nobodies are set up in the game in a very particular way they are a type of heartless so for those of you who don't know heartless are these like dark creatures that you transform into when you literally lose your heart thus heartless it's very like this it's very is game, literal yeah it's very literal but so it's a particular kind of heartless where like if the character in their real life when they still had a heart was very strong it's not really explained what strong means but like when they become a heartless so you know for what happens to sora i believe it's in chain of no not in chain of memories i can't remember when it happens uh, it happens is, in the middle of kingdom hearts uh one where he oh, goes right, yeah. to save Kyrie and instead becomes a so Sora heartless. becomes a heartless, and so then Roxas is supposed to be this like shell that is left behind. But the the, but the problem with this is, and then this becomes because yeah, he's called a, really, a nobody because he yeah. has no body because the heart has no body. Yeah. Anyway. But as it as but as but as things progress, <laughs> like it becomes very clear that a lot of the the characters who are identified as nobodies, particularly members of this organization 13, like they are actually trying to reconnect with their emotions. And in fact, a lot of them, Zemnis in particular, the, the evil guy who's at the head of organization 13, like he actually desperately wants to reconnect to his anger and to his rage. And in the case of Roxas, there is a much more sort of complex kind of feeling of companionship and camaraderie that he is trying to connect to, both in terms of like the trio that he was part of when he was in Organization 13, which we find out from another game. But then also in this moment at the beginning of Kingdom Hearts 2, where it's weird because the trio is sort of separate from him, but they're also his friends. And these trios figure very prominently throughout all of the Kingdom Hearts games. And so like how, how Roxas both like relates to Cypher at all. I can't remember who the other two are. 
um and how like, he don't matter but then at the same time like the way he's separate from them because he always fights alone throughout the entire prologue he doesn't really have that sort of like three-part party relationship that sora usually has when he's fighting throughout the game and so that the attempt for roxas to sort of connect to that sense or that feeling that he wants to have also then becomes spoiler alert the foundation for like his reintegration in a complicated way to Sora when Sora reappears in the game after the prologue. Right. And so I think we're kind of focusing on the characters here. And I do, I do agree that Roxas has this like very temporal relationship with like the twilight town crew is what I'll call them. So we don't have to worry about their names and then apologies, everyone. It's been a while (laughs) since I've played this. I should have just looked up all of the characters and watched all the cutscenes. But I think that, has a very real and parallel kind of universe relationship, right? Or almost a past life relationship, right? Because there's a lot of like past life metaphor in the Kingdom Hearts series. The longer it goes on, the more it almost like loses what I feel made it really beautiful in Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2 by focusing on the linearity of a particular single place and makes it way more of like a past life kind of story. Like this is who I was in my past life and this is why I will be this in my future one. Or this is my future life you've already played. Yeah. This is what I'm doing. Um, so g- moving like away kind of from that mentality, because I could talk about that forever because I love past life stories. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, but what I'm excited by about Kingdom Hearts is when we look at this underlying thread of the world through all of these, the world of Kingdom Hearts, through yeah. all of like the backstory of these very disparate Disney worlds, right? Yeah. Like, let's talk a little bit about that because, like, Kingdom Hearts isn't just Magic Kingdom and you go, right, on these different paths. Like, yeah. it's it's kind of like there is this, like, let's, let's just kind of, like, talk about it. We can talk about it mechanically, but also just talk about it more as the multiverse, right? Because yeah. I think that for me, when I watched watched slash played Kingdom Hearts 2, I wasn't so much focused in the multiverse, like, the literality of it, right? Yeah. I was focused in the fact that, like, I was being taught to understand one in like past lives, like this person had another life, yeah. right? But also that there are foils, right? Naminé and Roxas are these two different concepts, right? And they both wear white, right? Yeah. Kind of also kind of acknowledging death, right? They're both dead, right? Because they need to be integrated, right? Into Sora and Kyrie, And I think in a way Naminé already kind of was, well, yeah, um, no, it, it's it's interesting because yeah. they're like they're you know you have the sort of the core trio or at least the core trio of friends from Kingdom Hearts. So you have you know Riku, you have Sora, and you have Kyrie, but they also then have like a uh, a a, com- a component like nobody trio that goes along with them, and and Namine well, and Roxas figure into that. But the thing is, like when you're talking about how that works in terms of like the Disney world. Um, what immediately came to mind was uh, the the Hundred Acre Wood sequence in the game, where like when Sora first goes into the book to to talk to Pooh, um, Pooh Bear is is sitting on a log, and then they have a brief conversation, but then it's suddenly interrupted. Sora is ejected from the book, and then he comes back. But then when he comes back, there is this sort of problem that Pooh has where Pooh no Pooh is still Pooh as a character, but doesn't actually remember who Sora is, and also doesn't remember who any of the other characters in the Hundred Acre Wood are. 
And this, to me, kind of reflected something that is in Chain of Memories, which is something that Sora does to sort of like obliviate the memory of him from other characters. I love how you and, say obliviate. You're just like, he's well, obliviate. What it, it is. Yeah. yeah. Make, make forget, I guess. No, <laughs> obliviate. He obliviated yeah. them. And so when, when Sora encounters this, now Sora sees something about himself, like, as an abstraction, like, or like as one of these stories within the world. And so it's not just that like the IP of a particular Disney story is being tossed in there. Cause it's like, Oh look, it's Pooh Bear. Everybody loves Pooh Bear. I actually love Pooh Bear. So I also but, love Pooh Bear, but it has a function within sort of like the narrative stream. And when we were talking about this earlier, what to me kind of feels sort of almost allegorical because it's like these layers that sort of like it's like a layer cake and that like Sora is one layer of the cake but then when he when he sees someone experiencing something that he previously experienced in like his these new encounters like it adds a depth of meaning to it and and you know Roxas of course is really important for that in terms of the character development but in terms of sort of like the narrative threads throughout each time you go to one of these worlds even though you're getting what is essentially like a quick and dirty version of the film, like, you know, a quick and dirty version of Mulan, a quick and dirty version of Hercules within that context, it's reflecting something that has either already happened to Sora or something that maybe isn't going to happen or sort of like his relationships to other characters. And so it's adding the sort of like, you know, you have the literal relationship, you have sort of the metaphorical representation of it. And then you have what, you know, in, medieval like theories of allegory of like what could be considered an anagogical relationship which is like how world relates to subject and so forth right and so like all of that gets packed on top of each other in a kind of like simultaneity so that's why to me the parallel both has this as you said like past lives quality to it but it also has a very literary quality to it in terms of like sort of this top-down structure as opposed to sort of like temporally like forward and back structure Right. No, the top down structure, I think, is what gives Kingdom Hearts its credence. And maybe like this like section, right, would be called more of like Kingdom Hearts 2 as like the characterization of like you in the world and like the universe. Because yeah. I think what's really interesting is that the universe, right, is kind of the aspect of Kingdom Hearts when you are on that screen in the Gumi ship and are like, okay, which Gumi area am I going to next? Yeah. Like that's the universe. And I think that's where when I say Kingdom Hearts 2 made me like I think my argument to Nicholas was something along the lines of Kingdom Hearts is what teaches kids about the multiverse and makes them understand that there is like there are other worlds out there. Right. It makes people think differently. Yeah. Like, I think it actually does teach kids. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say teach kids because that's a very, you know, it, it shows, teaches our kids. Shows, show, it shows them. and like literally yeah. illustrates not just right someone's place in the universe and that there is different worlds out there, but that you can travel to these different worlds and you recognize that those people are the same as you are in some capacity, right? Yeah. And the way you were talking about that layering, right, between world and universe and Sora and say Hercules, for example, kind yeah. of showing that allegory and that metaphor is that allegory and metaphor is something we do very often literary device to engender empathy, right? And so Kingdom Hearts' characters, right? When people talk about how they really like the characters of Kingdom Hearts, I'm not sure if it's about the characterize, like the character themselves or like the characterization of that relationship that people have to each other. Because yeah. for me, what happened is when I played and I tried to play the other titles of Kingdom Hearts, I couldn't get into them because they were rehashing 
all of the stories of Kingdom Hearts 2, but with different skins. So for me, like yeah. learning more about Aqua or learning more about um, See, I like Ventex, Aqua as a character. I actually right? think Aqua is an interesting Aqua character. is like the one kind of cool character. But Aqua is what like, Kyrie should have been. <laughs> yes, Aqua is what Kyrie should have been. I think yeah. actually that's also a meme. And the yeah. issue is that I think Aqua is what Kyrie should have been and or in my head, I think Aqua is who Kyrie would have been had like they had a strong, right, a stronger female protagonist in the game, right? Yeah. Versus Kyrie is just the damsel in distress because we're making a game for boys because only boys play games. But then you see like once the fan base was generally female, like they added Aqua um, yeah. versus like Shion, who is not actually, right? Uh, yeah, no, she's not really quite on. She even has no Kyrie relationship whatsoever. Yeah, the characters look um, similar. And that's another weird thing is like, you know, the similarity between, say, like Roxas and Ventus. I think it's just, a, no, and it, the similarity is like the past lives things. But for me, yeah. it's the multiverse theory, right? It's that you yeah. put someone into a world. You're like, oh, this person is like Roxas. They're a new character. Well, this is, you know what? I actually really like this character. I can't wait to meet Sora, but I like this character. And suddenly you go through the same process Roxas goes through when you're angry about giving up yourself because it's for the betterment of the world, because you should not have existed. And suddenly you're like, what, is, what does that even mean to exist? I am here, so I do exist. And they're like, no, you need to repair, right, Sora's memories, because he lost all of them in Chain of Memories. So come back to him, and right now Sora can move. And now, yeah. right, I think you were talking about that empathy and that characterization is then displayed to us when we see Sora like waving goodbye to Roxas's friends who actually never knew Roxas existed because all this happened in a computer, which is just another but, layer of But things. Sora has Roxas's emotional reaction to it. And that to me, yeah. like, even though it's a like because it's a game like very that demographically speaking, it's directed towards kids. But to me, that was really interesting the way in which it sort of found a way in a kind of very over explicit moment to show to a, you know a younger audience what it's like to have complicated emotions like you literally see it, it you know f because like Sora appears to be like hey guys I'm going I'm going to get on the train and I'm going to go and then he's like crying at the same time but he doesn't understand why he's crying yeah but, no but and we understand why he's crying because Roxas would have And been the sad. kid will understand why yeah. he's crying and that's what I'm talking about is the empathy it's the understanding and I think I read somewhere the best definition of empathy I found was, and then I, is not a, it, this is like a, a metaphor in of itself. So it's not really a definition, just FYI. Um, but was that the best metaphor for empathy I think I've ever read was something along the lines of, it's not about putting yourself in someone else's shoes because you are not that person. It's about stepping out of their shoes and walking alongside of them and just being with them that makes you get that empathy. Because if you say, well, if I was in your shoes, you're bringing your bias, who you are, and your unconscious likeness about your experience into their problem, which has nothing to do with their problem. Yeah. And interestingly enough, the entire time you play Kingdom Hearts 2, or these types of this, I don't even want to say this type of game because I've never seen a game do this, um, but Kingdom Hearts, which is really like you go to different specifically like Disney worlds, but like you go to any different world that doesn't have the sort of underlying thread like Warcraft, like you wouldn't go from a Warcraft to a Starcraft map, for example, um, or you wouldn't jump from Assassin's Creed to God of War. 
right? Those have some yeah. sort of parallel. But what I'm saying is like you wouldn't, right, go go in that way. And I think that what's interesting is this like always puts character in the empathy role. It puts him in the role of the listener who's here to help you with your problems, but he's not here to solve them for you. Yeah. And I think that's really powerful as well, which engenders like this idea of empathy kind of translating beyond like where you're comfortable, right? And yeah. it makes you care about Sora and it makes you care about like the Disney characters in a way that is seen a lot in Kingdom Hearts 2. And this is kind of the problem I have. And I'm just going to sidestep really briefly here because we're kind of coming up to time yeah. with Kingdom Hearts 3. And the reason why Kingdom Hearts 3 is not the game any of us deserved because we deserved better. <laughs> Lord's rant. That, Here we go. <laughs> is that Kingdom Hearts 3 doesn't do or employ any of the literary principles or the metaphor or the multiverse theory that we've talked about here. It kind of at the end becomes somewhat of a fan service. But then literally the fans were like, well, it was cool to see everybody come together and that's great. But when's Kingdom Hearts 4? Because this game was kind of trash. And that's funny. Is we still want Kingdom Hearts 4 because... We recognize that Kingdom Hearts 2 has the empathy role, right? Has the area of you're not solving other people's problems for them. You're just helping them along the way. And then you see them, right? Kind of solve yeah. the problem. But Kingdom Hearts 3 is like you go and well, also you go to some of the worlds and you get the sequel version of that world. And the sequel's never as good as the original of the Disney film. Yeah. Um, or you just go to get Frozen, the movie, and you actually don't do anything to help Frozen, the movie. You just watch Frozen, the movie, in Unreal Engine. Yeah, it's it's literally, West here is a Disney movie in your Final Fantasy It's game. literally, <laughs> here's a Disney movie in your Final Fantasy. And I think you do the same with Tangled, except Tangled is actually, I will say the Tangled world is the best world in that it tried to employ some of the Kingdom Hearts 2. You're, like, you take on Flynn Rider's role, right? And you're helping Rapunzel, you know, do things and then you make them meet up and then you're not there. So like it actually did some of that. So I will say the Tangled World is, is an exception, but it was also early in the game and then you realize they had to rush the rest of the content. Yeah. Well, and I so mean, I, I think, yeah. okay. So to wrap all of this up, I think one of the ways in which we could think about it is that what makes Kingdom Hearts 2 perhaps fundamentally different from Kingdom Hearts 3, just based on what you've said, is that Kingdom Hearts 2 really seemed to understand that it wasn't just a lore dump, like that you actually had to have a structural relationship between these various things that you're putting together and so if i'm going to be a little too cute about it it's not so much a theme park as it is like a theme and variation park which if you're familiar with that concept from from music theory theme and variation is this idea that sort of you begin with a theme something that you're positing so in you know in terms of kingdom hearts all sorts of things like you know the trios like the Sora as a character, the relationships, the relationship between Sora and these various Disney IPs. But then the variation is extremely important because it takes that theme and it reworks it in such a way that the theme is still recognizable. Whereas if you create a game in which it's just like, hey, we have like fancy new graphics and look, you can literally watch Frozen while you're playing your Final Fantasy game. It really misses what is fundamental about design there, which is that it, you understanding the relationship and like how it was structured. Right. And I think that that's when we kind of comes to a lot of people, you know, are really into Kingdom Hearts like myself, but aren't necessarily into like all of the lore. And sometimes we would confuse lore with the word story. Like I'm not yeah. really interested in the history of Roxas, right? Or where did, I mean, Aqua is actually kind of cool and I tried to play that game and I just can't, <laughs> I can't get to the cool Aqua parts. Um, but I think that that's important because when we look at creating a world, right, it's not just so much 
creating lore or creating story, right? Or it's it really is about having a theme and kind of seeing that through the entire right game. And Kingdom Hearts 2 did a fantastic job, not just at the beginning of trying to right empathize with Roxas, because that's where we really kind of we really went into the empathy route. And I'm glad that we did because Kingdom Hearts really does engender empathy, but also about creating this type of multiverse and parallelism right through their stories that with every single new character you meet from Organization 13, you get a sort of foil to yourself and you also get to understand them a little bit better with right kind of like Sora's resolute stubbornness of but I'm not like you I would never do that and then them going ha ha you're so funny Roxas like you would (laughs) and then it's like who the fuck is Roxas right and I think it's that kind of interplay right that enables Kingdom Hearts to have such a long-term longevity of its franchise and of its fan base well, once again, Lauren has wrapped things up in a pretty little bow, far better than I ever could. But I do want to leave you all with the fact that, as I noted at the earlier in the episode, we have our Substack. That's gamedesigndiscourse.substack.com. Um, we will be recording a Patreon episode very shortly. So if you want to get access to that, head on over to patreon.com forward slash foodiedashi. You can follow Lauren on Twitter at the Lauren Ash, and you can follow me as well at Academicality. And if you don't give a crap about either of us you can still follow the podcast <laughs> at foodiedashipod on twitter.com well, you'll um, still we... get us but cleverly disguised <laughs> exactly so we want to thank you all for listening and until next time stay safe stay healthy and well go play kingdom hearts too. go play kingdom hearts too